Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, we looked at the start of Paul's uh, second missionary trip, uh, and uh, we were looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. And um, as you may remember, we saw that it was an inauspicious start, especially when compared with the start of the first missionary trip. Uh, the first missionary trip started with prayer and with fasting and with worship in the congregation of the saints, with prophets and teachers and with the Holy Spirit speaking directly through them, saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. And then there was more fasting and more prayer and laying on of hands, a commissioning service, if you like, and a formal farewell. Uh, but in contrast, last week we saw that the second missionary trip just began with a suggestion. Hey, said Paul, why don't we go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're going? And from the suggestion, it descended into an argument as to whether or not to take John Mark with them, whether or not to give him a second chance because Mark had deserted them on the earlier, on, on the first trip. And the argument culminated in, in the first recorded church split. Barnabas took Mark and made his way to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and they went through Syria and Cilicia. And um, as far as I'm concerned, it's kind of actually easy to feel sympathy for Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas was this really lovely guy. I mean, he's a second chance kind of a bloke, which is great because he's representing our Lord, who is a second chance kind of a Lord. Um, and given that Paul had at one time been saved by Barnabas giving him a second chance, it seems ironic and perhaps even hypocritical of Paul to deny John Mark a second chance. But Paul was right, actually. Um, his position basically is that preaching the gospel is paramount. Uh, it is the church's first and most precious responsibility to take the gospel to all nations. And so he wasn't going to do anything that might jeopardize gospel ministry. And what we're going to see this week is that Paul continues with that policy. Uh, this week we're going to read together from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 16, beginning at verse 1 which in your pew Bibles is on page 898. And this week we're going to cover three pericopi. A pericope is a... I just thought I'd introduce a new word for the heck of it. <laughs> um, it's a Bible college-y kind of word. Um, 13 years of not using it. I thought, what the heck, I'll bring it out. A pericope is a discrete scene in the Bible, or a unit, a coherent unit of thought. So today we're going to have three... We're going to look at three pericopi, uh, each pericope very helpfully has a heading in your pew Bible. And Avon is going to read to us the first pericope, um, or scene, scene one, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Thank you, Avon.
Thank you, Yvonne. Well, um, here we are introduced to uh, Timothy. And um, Timothy is going to be a man who we get to know well through the rest of the New Testament. Um, Within 20 years, Tim is going to co-author with Paul six letters of the New Testament. Uh, those being 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon, as well as becoming lead pastor uh, of the church in Ephesus. So we're going to get to know Tim well. Now, but of course, the big thing that people notice about this passage is that Paul circumcises Timothy. And not infrequently, Paul is accused of being inconsistent on the basis of this passage. And the reason why people accuse him of inconsistency is that only one chapter back, just one page back in your pew Bible, Paul vigorously refuted those who argued that new Christians had to be circumcised. But here he is, just one chapter on, himself circumcising Timothy. Well, what's that about, they say? Well, in chapter 15... Certain men had, had gone up from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch to talk to the Gentile converts uh, to Christianity, that is to say the non-Jewish converts to Christianity, and they said, hey, it's great that you've put your faith in the Jewish Messiah, in Jesus, son of David. However, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Indeed, you must all be circumcised and taught how to keep the whole law of Moses. And uh, that, that created a sharp dispute. And Barnabas and Paul traveled down from Antioch to Jerusalem to deal with this controversy. And together with Peter and James, they basically hit hard this notion completely on the head. They established, no, it is by grace that we are saved, not by obeying the law of Moses, And it is by faith that we are justified, not by getting circumcised and doing the works of the law. As soon as you you put your faith in Jesus, you are God's friend. It's as simple as that. Does this mean that Christians must not get circumcised? Well, no, it actually doesn't mean that. Actually, Christians are free to get circumcised or not get circumcised. But it does mean that if you teach that circumcision is necessary to eternal salvation, then you are changing God's gospel into something quite different. And it does mean that actually if you go and get circumcised, thinking that by such works you are right with God, then in fact you are no longer trusting God, rather you're trusting in yourself, and that's disastrous. So I think it is very sad when people think that Paul is being inconsistent because it shows that they have completely missed the point and it is a very important point. In fact, Paul is not being inconsistent, he's being remarkably consistent because his consistency consistency is found in this let nothing jeopardize gospel ministry. And the fact that, that um, Timothy was legally Jewish, he had, he had a Jewish mum that made him legally Jewish. Um, the fact that he was legally Jewish and not yet circumcised would make Timothy unacceptable to a Jewish audience. And Paul, he knew that they were going to be doing evangelism in synagogues as well as in marketplaces, community halls, lecture theaters, and dining rooms. Paul knew that to not circumcise Timothy 
would put gospel ministry in jeopardy. And so for Tim, submitting to this minor surgical procedure, undoubtedly painful and risky, um, this is a world without anesthesia or antibiotics, but for Tim, this was just one cost of following Jesus. And there'd be many, and there'd be greater ones than this. So Timothy joined the team. The team now, as far as we know, is now Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And uh, so they continue on the trip, visiting all the congregations that Paul and Barnabas had established two or three years ago. They delivered the letter that we find in Acts chapter 15. They delivered that letter of judgments and decisions made by the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And they taught more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And the result, well, actually, it's a good result. It was there in um, verse 5. The churches grew in both their faith, that is to say, in their ability to trust Jesus and their understanding of how to serve Jesus. They grew in their faith. They also grew in their number. More and more people came to faith in Christ and joined their ranks. And, and, and isn't that fantastic? I mean, where do we get the recipe for that happening? Well, the recipe's right there in the text. It's a simple recipe. It's a simple strategy. In fact, it's the only one. Teach what the apostles taught, and churches will grow in faith and in number. Uh, so let's uh, read on. Pericope number 2, verses 6 to 10. And I think Jacques, oh, Jacques was, and now it's Sarah's going to read that. Thank you, Sarah. Great, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Perhaps um, the first thing that strikes you, uh, perhaps for you, the first thing that struck you uh, about that text as we read it um, was uh, there's a lot about guidance in there, isn't there? The, 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 the Spirit of God shutting some doors, opening others. Um, but I think actually the thing I'd like us to see first is a very small word, and it's in verse 10, and the word is we. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave. And from this very point on, the book of Acts is regularly a first-person plural narrative. We did this. We did that. Clearly, suddenly, somehow, now, the author is actually part of the team, an eyewitness of what he relates. And uh, actually, we know that our author is Luke. He's a physician. He's a doctor. Uh, he's written two books, part one, all that Jesus did from the beginning, uh, the Gospel of, of Luke. Part two, all that Jesus continued to do through the Acts of the Holy Spirit, book, book two. Apart from that, actually, we don't know a lot about Luke. Uh, we don't know exactly where or when or how he became part of the team. But he's a part of it now, 
And from now on, Luke will be at Paul's side for much, not perhaps all, but for much of what happens through the rest of the book. Um, So it's interesting, isn't it? We see Paul, he accumulates travel companions. He gathers people to help him and to train up as he goes along. Now the team is Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke. And they, I'm guessing, are the senior partners. There may well have also been a number of junior partners who are not mentioned. Just as uh, on missionary trip number one, John Mark was there as a junior partner. We didn't even know he was there until it was announced he was leaving. So there could be junior partners as well. Um, A a Bible uh, scholar, uh, Peter Adam, um, he was speaking recently at at an event I attended And uh, he said that he'd counted up the number of ministry partners Paul had in the New Testament. The number of named people who helped him along the way or he accumulated and gathered and trained up. Anyone like to guess how many ministry partners Paul had in the New Testament named? Uh, Very good guess, but slightly too high. It's 81. Um, uh, uh, Steph's guest was 181. Paul was quite a team builder. Okay, we've seen that. We've seen that. Luke joins the team. Now let's actually have a think a little bit about guidance. Twice uh, God said no to a plan of Paul's. Twice he closed the door. Once he gave uh, Paul a vision. Once he opened a door. Um, and I, I, for me, this is quite interesting. Even though we all know that it is the Lord's will that all people and all nations hear the gospel about Jesus, we can also see that God has a specific will about who, when, where, and how. God wanted Paul, so to speak, as he runs across this red line at the top of the screen, God wants Paul to neither turn to the right, that is, into Bithynia, which runs along the, the southern, uh, southern uh, shore of, of the Black Sea. Nor does he want Paul to turn to the left into the Roman province of Asia uh, or East Turkey, as it would be today. Um, rather, he wants Paul just to keep on going straight because he has a job for him to do in Macedonia. Now, if Paul had gone to preach about Jesus in either Asia or Bithynia, we all probably you know, would have thought, hey, that's a great idea. But he would have been, this would have been disobedience, even though there's nothing in the Bible to say so, nor would have his friends necessarily have understood it to be disobedience. But it would have been, because Paul knows what God wants him to do. And I guess that's kind of the same for Jonah. Oh, Jonah, you're going to preach the gospel in Spain, in Tarshish. That's wonderful. Um, Jonah, our missionary. Actually, only Jonah knew he was moving in precisely the wrong direction, in the opposite direction to the one that God had revealed to him. Uh, So I guess the question is, um, now that the the Spirit of God, we see the Spirit of God alternatively named here as uh, the Holy Spirit in one place and the Spirit of Jesus in the next place, how did the Spirit of God communicate his nose to Paul? Um, Well, we're, we're not told except that we do know that it was the Holy Spirit, and we know that the Holy Spirit speaks. Perhaps Paul received words as an inward internal revelation. Perhaps he heard an audible voice. But, but in terms of unpacking you know, this book, I think perhaps it's most likely that uh, when the Holy Spirit speaks, Paul is, is hearing prophets bringing uh, prophecy 
by way of the New Testament gift of prophecy. We know, in, in fact, um, from the previous chapter, chapter 15, verse 32, that Silas is a prophet. So probably, actually, several people in the team received this revelation and were able to say, hey, um, I think the Holy Spirit is saying, dot, dot, dot. Uh, the vision, in contrast, is obviously from God, but it is not particularly described as having come from the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit wasn't involved, but rather that this type of revelation is not especially associated with the third person of the Trinity. Prophecy, in contrast, is. Now, the vision was Paul's, but the conclusion belonged to the whole group. They discussed it. Undoubtedly, they prayed about it. They shared in its implication. Uh, Luke writes, We got ready at once, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Um, when it comes to God's guidance, uh, a proverb that I was taught many years ago, and I think it's a useful proverb, um, my, my little pet proverb is, a rudder only works on a moving ship. Um, Paul and co. put themselves at the Lord's disposal. They started doing what they thought God wanted them to do, and then, once they're on the move, God himself adds in corrective guidance. I know here... I know a yes there to lead them into a fuller understanding of his exact will. So, if you're not sure what to do, do whatever your hand finds to do, for the Lord is with you. As you commit yourself to moving forward, Jesus will correct you, either to the left or to the right, until you're bang on target. A rudder only works on a moving ship. Um, John Stott's summary of God's guidance inspired by this, by this passage reads as follows. Uh, from this, in other words, from this pericope, from this we may learn that God, God's, uh, usually God's guidance is not negative only, but also positive, closing some doors, opening others. Not circumstantial only, but also rational thinking about our situation as well as observing it. Not personal only, but also corporate, a sharing of the data with others so that we can mull them over together and reach a common mind. Well, uh, let's continue in our reading. Uh, Pericope uh, 3, verses 11 to 15. T Timothy, would you mind reading uh, um, this? Thank you. Thank you, Tim. 
Well, we're now in the city of Philippi, and it would seem that there's no synagogue there. Um, uh, that is implied by the fact that there is a place of prayer, so presumably there's no synagogue, which in turn tells us that there are not many Jewish families in that city. Now, a place of prayer means a place of worship. Worship services were held there, out of doors, uh, on the bank of a river, every Sabbath. And we can imagine, I think correctly, that a small number of people, both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, uh, that is, Gentiles who'd heard about God, about the God of the Bible, through their Jewish friends and contacts, they came together to worship on the Sabbath, uh, with uh, the Old Testament being their text. The phrase, uh, I think it's an interesting phrase, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. I don't think that means there were no men present. Uh, It does mean that the worshippers present were women. Uh, There are likely probably to be a number of male uh, slaves and servants present. Um, But the worshippers were women. And if the worshippers were women, then where were the men worshippers? Well, perhaps the Gentile men could not be present because in the Roman world the Sabbath was not a day off. They were perhaps at work. But the wealthier women could be there because they were more at their leisure. And Lydia is one such Gentile woman. We don't know if she's married or single. We do know that she is an independent businesswoman trading in an expensive luxury commodity, which is purple dye and purple cloth. Um, Purple cloth was the signature vestments of of the very, very rich. Um, We also know that she's the head of a household. Uh, A head of a household, presumably that would be, well, undoubtedly that would include quite a staff, a number of servants, uh, probably children, um, uh, and other, if not children, other dependents, such as nieces, nephews, uh, unmarried aunts, unmarried sisters, um, and perhaps aged peas, uh, aged parents. Um, we understand that Lydia's household is impressive, able to offer hospitality at a moment's notice to Paul and his entourage. This might have been a considerable entourage. And on this day, Lydia has led her household down with her to the river to pray. And Lydia, we see, was uh, already a God-fearing Gentile. Now she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. She believes the gospel message about Jesus. She already knew that, that God was true, that God exists. Now she learns that she can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his Son. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, all hers In Jesus Christ. She believes because God has enabled her to believe. Paul was the messenger, but Lydia was saved by God for God. And uh, we see here that her faith is most assuredly authentic faith. She is immediately baptized, our first act of obedience to our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. She's immediately baptized and she immediately bears good fruit in keeping with repentance, offering up hospitality to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and their support crew, whoever they were. And that's not just a matter of sacrificial expense, although it will be a very considerable expense because they're going to be there for quite some time. Weeks, I think, maybe even months. Um, But she just, yep, she just lets them all in and houses it 
Um, and that's just not a matter of the expense, but also what she's doing is she's choosing to publicly identify with Paul and his message. This is a matter of her aligning herself with the Christians as a Christian. She's bearing good fruit in keeping with repentance. And in providing a home base for operations in Philippi, Lydia has become a team member too. Uh, And we notice, it's really curious and very interesting, the rest of her household, servants, children, perhaps infants, they were also all baptized. Uh, That can be a little bit of a shock for us, uh, living in a post-Reformation world, because we have most assuredly individualized conversion, and we think of conversion in a certain way, and we expect conversion to have an intellectual and a spiritual component. Intellectually, we expect conversion to be a clear intellectual grasp of the content of the gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth is our Savior from heaven who died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve in order that we might be forgiven and brought back into fellowship with God, our Creator. Can you sign on the bottom line on that one and tick the box? If you can, that's great. But conversion spiritually is not just intellectual assent, but rather a deep and profound personal conviction that all of that information is both true and life-changing. And certainly, absolutely, undoubtedly, this intellectual and spiritual experience was precisely Lydia's, to be sure. She is born again. Hallelujah. Praise God. But what about the rest of her household? Is the text telling us that every single one, all the members of her household, had this precise same experience? Well, actually, the text doesn't tell us anything of the sort. It's just completely mute. Is the text therefore telling us that perhaps their their baptisms are questionable or invalid? That they didn't necessarily belong to Christ unless they also could testify to this intellectual and spiritual experience just like Lydia's? No, the text doesn't make any kind of hint or suggestion of that either. Um, What does this mean? Well, I think many of Lydia's household were probably either too young or too poorly educated, if educated at all, to ever to be able to offer the kind of assent to the gospel that I have described. Um, They believed, I'm sure they believed, I'm sure they were told to believe, and I'm sure that they did believe because Lydia believed. And so they believed. They believed Lydia because Lydia was the person in charge of their lives. And biblically, clearly, that's actually good enough. Clearly, the Bible accepts Lydia's authority to make a faith commitment on behalf of her charges, those who depend upon her, making her decision for them to be baptized acceptable, making their baptisms authentic baptisms, and thus making their inclusion in the people of Christ real and legitimate. And one of the things that this means is that Lydia, too, has become a team builder. She's only been a Christian for a matter of minutes. She's already copying Paul as he imitates Christ. Lydia, too, has become a team builder. And just to clear up how this might apply to us, well, I guess, how does this apply to us? Well, parents, I just want to encourage you. Um, Parents of little children, I just want to encourage you, just as you have the God-given right and authority to tell your young children to eat their veggies, 
and they must. You have the authority to tell your children what they can and can't eat. So too you have the right and authority to tell them that they are Christians uh, when they're little children. Uh, And indeed they are Christians if you are a Christian because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, the children of believers are holy. In other words, they're holy ones. In other words, they're saints. In other words, they belong as much as you or I belong. So be encouraged. You do have the authority to tell your little children both to eat their veggies and to follow Jesus. But let's move to a closing thought. Uh, Leadership as team building. In Pericope 1, we watched as Timothy was added to the team. In Pericope 2, Luke. And in Pericope 3, Lydia and her household were added to the team. And Lydia herself became a team builder. So I guess one question is, are you involved in a ministry or are you leading a ministry here at St. Barnabas? Perhaps you're a home group leader or involved in children's ministry or a prayer group. Or perhaps you occupy one office or another here at St. Barnabas. Or do you perhaps have a a ministry outside of St. Barnabas? Uh, um, uh, Leading Christian ministry on a university campus or visiting prisons or detention centers or ministering to the homeless or evangelizing in the public square. Um, If those things are true for you and you're a leader of Christ's church in some context, either under the St. Barnabas umbrella or not, um, who have you invited to join with you and to go with you to see what you do and to copy you? Goodness gracious me, please forgive me, I'm hopeless at this. I don't have the vainest idea who I'm training up to be the next rector of St. Barnabas. Rather hoping to be here for a while, actually. Though it hadn't occurred to me, I'm really rubbish at this. But given a week to think about it, I realized that by God's wonderful grace and not by my design, this is happening at St. Barnabas. But I need to do it better, and I think we need to do it better. Um. We need to apply this insight to our ministries. We don't have to limit this insight to our ministries, although it is vital that we do apply it to Christian ministry. I reckon that with respect to almost anything at all that's worth doing, if it's worth doing, why not take someone along with you? So whether it's um, surfing or quilting or fly fishing, or gliding, or managing a business, or looking after children, or making things, or repairing things, or or running, or bird watching, or listening to bands, or watching a play. If this thing is worth doing, who can I take with me in order that they might learn to do it or appreciate it too? That's a good question. In fact, for me, it's three questions. Firstly, who do I want to take with me? Secondly, who wants to come with me? And thirdly, who does God want to go with me? And if I get three different answers, go with answer three. And if this thing that we do together is worth doing, well, then let's do it together. And also along the way, as we quilt or fly fish or surf, why don't we also make it an opportunity to teach what the apostles taught from the New Testament so that Christ's church may grow in both faith and size? I guess we could apply this to men's breakfasts, couldn't we? Who shall I invite? Well, uh, we're going to need the Lord with us. The Lord is with us. The Lord be with you.
Amen.